So not only did Stovey ask you guys to connect with each other by signing in. Anybody sign in, Stovey? Yes, uh, okay, he's very thankful for you. He gave me the upraised hand, like, yes, they're doing that. But it, there's something else that you're going to be, you're going to put it up there, right, Stovey? He's putting it in there right now. So don't be surprised that you see something else coming and... Uh, uh, we're just trying to keep it uh, interesting because he, what he said to me at the beginning, he said, Kara, let's be honest, you're not very interesting. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come along and I'm going to put some things out there to keep today interesting. And it's like, yo, I can't argue with that. Our scripture reading today is going to begin in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Our text is, this is our text, and it's going to run from verses 1 to 8. And uh, here's what we read. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged." But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through, my, increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. This is an interesting little passage in the book of Romans. Firstly, because it illustrates for us, it illustrates for us how Paul has structured this book. And he has a writing style here that revolves around questions. In these eight verses, there's eight questions that are asked. I counted in, ch in chapters 2 and 3, 25 questions that he puts forth. So if you're reading the book of Romans on your own, I encourage you, follow the questions. That's how you will follow the book, is listen to the questions. Don't just read them and go by them. What is this question that he's putting? And that will help you understand how he's developing his thought, because that's the style he's using in the book of Romans. Now, some of the questions are to advance his discussion. Some of the questions are to express what his sincere readers might be asking, and some to express what the skeptics might be asking. He's been building a case, if you will recall, if you've been with us since like the summer, he's been building a case from 116 on. 116, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And we said that he is going to, he just introduced this topic of God's righteousness, and he's going to come back to it later. And we're almost there. We're finally almost there. But then he goes on to say, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness uh, and those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We spent a lot of time on that. Not going back to it, I just want to refresh you because it was a while since we've been there. Well, he's build, been building this case from 116 right on up to the end of chapter 2 where we just finished a week ago. We 
pointed out that in chapter 1, he was dealing with obvious, unrighteous sinners. People who willfully went against the things of God and they knew they were going against the things of God and they wanted to go against the things of God. Obvious, unrighteous sinners. But then in chapter 2, he begins to deal with the oblivious, self-righteous sinners. People who thought they were right with God and had no clue as to what God was asking of them. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at verses 1 to 8. If we were to go to Romans 3, 9, right after this, which will be next week, that's going to finish up this discussion. Now, what's kind of interesting about today's text is if you were to take these eight verses, you could just pull them right out of the text, go right into his thoughts on 3, 9, and you would not feel like you missed a thing. So what we have here, the visual that came to my mind, it's like you're racing to get to Fargo, and somewhere along the line, you've got to stop off at a wayside on the side, and that's what he's doing. The goal is to get to Fargo. The goal is to get through the next section after this. But he has just pulled off for a second because he's got something to tend to. I had a guy when we were ministering in a church previously from here. Um, he always had one particular question, and it never seemed to have a real purpose to it. I couldn't understand it because as we're going through our Wednesday night Bible studies, he would ask time and time again, didn't matter where we're at studying the scriptures, he would just say, got a question. What about the Jews? And I would somehow try and connect our passage to the Jews week after week after week, and he would just sit there. And he seemed satisfied that I did that. But I never could understand what he was... Is he really trying to understand something about the Jews? Because this text isn't even speaking about the Jews right now. And he, what about the Jews? Well, that's where... I say that little story because this is where chapter 3, verse 1 begins. It begins with a question. Paul writes it out. What about the Jews? And he understands that some people may be asking this question. He said in chapter 3, verse 1, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision. Now you can understand why. In chapter 2, the Jews who had the law and they were confident in the law, remember how he said you thought you were teachers of babes? You could inform people on God's truth? They had the law. And he said, yeah, but you don't keep it yourselves. So you got a problem there. And then he went on to say, oh, on this issue of circumcision, it's supposed to represent a change of the heart. And you don't have that change of heart. So this law and the circumcision neither were they accomplishing what they should have been in understanding what the purpose of those things were. So this question very readily could come up, couldn't it? What, what advantage then has the Jew? What's the profit, profit of circumcision? Why all this stuff about the Jews if you've just cut, you know, uh, taken the legs out from under us because of that? What's the great deal? And he says, in every way, because to them were committed the oracles of God. That the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, were given the privilege that the revelation of God's gospel, ultimately to be found in Jesus Christ, the revelation of the gospel on unto, right on up to Revelation, the book of Revelation, and where things are going to go from here, that was committed to the descendants of Abraham. They are the ones who had the privilege of that. And as Abraham was promised, through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Messiah came through them. It's very significant that they are God's people who were chosen to be 
the revealers, if you will, of God's truth and the ongoing revelation of his gospel. So that question, what about the Jews? But then there's this next question. It relates to it. Well, what about the unbelieving Jews is the next question that Paul raises. He says, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? So if these Jews were given this, this privilege of, of being the, the recipients of God's revelation that is going to come and lead to Christ, if that's who, who they are, what about those who within the nation, they don't believe it, they reject it, they don't want any part of it, they don't see it as all that important. It says, does that make God's faithfulness of no effect? Does that, does, does that then put God in a bad place? And he says, certainly not. Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. They don't take God off balance. They don't knock him off balance. They don't, they don't defeat him by saying, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to walk in that. God is God. And he is going to work out his plan of salvation. He is going to fulfill the gospel as it has been promised. And nothing is going to stop him from that. And though there's puny little men who maybe don't believe and think that they don't, they don't need to follow this, uh, the day's going to come. He's just going to judge them, and they're going to find out that, oh, I didn't make the best decision on that one because God is going to be proven to be right. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Friends, there is never going to come a point when we stand before God and we shake our fingers in his face and say, you did it wrong. You were unrighteous. You were unjust. You were not morally uh, upstanding and, and how you dealt with mankind, never going to happen. Some may think that they could stand before him and wave their finger in his eyes, but when the day that they do stand before him, they will crumble to the ground before him and recognize that they have no place, no place at all, to call into account the creator God of the universe. And they'll never get the question out. But here, that's how, what's being asked. Well, the people who don't believe and, and didn't want to dismiss God, is there any effect on that? Nope, doesn't change God, doesn't change what he's doing. So that's the next question. Okay, then he goes on to say, what about God's justice? What about God's justice? If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Look at the contrast here. We become unrighteous, and God's righteousness is greater all the more. We demonstrate unrighteousness. It reflects or reveals as a backdrop to how incredibly righteous he is. Well, then, is he wrong for inflicting wrath upon those who are demonstrating unrighteousness because it's bringing a revelation of who he is? Is he, is he wrong for bringing that wrath against those who, who reveal his righteousness? And his answer is, how's he going to judge the world if, if he does, is not able to say, nope, you're wrong, you're unrighteous, I'm bringing that point to bear, and that, so that their unrighteousness does not be viewed, does not become viewed as righteous. And we understand that, friends, that God has got to be able to judge. We have, we have situations in our nation today, we see it happen all the time, where there are you know, attorney generals 
who are deciding they're not going to they're not going to enforce the laws and they're going to pick and choose what laws they're going to enforce and we say there's something wrong there we know it there's something wrong there because their task is to enforce the law well god is going to enforce his righteous standard always and those who are unrighteous yeah in contrast he looks all the more righteous but it doesn't mean he's not going to enforce the standards because then he would not be righteous if he did not he must bring the judgment fourth question what about the benefits of my sin what about the benefits if the truth of god verse 7 has increased through my lie to his glory why am i still judged as a sinner and why not say let us do evil that good may come well here if i in my sin bring glory to God and I read the, the, His truth is revealed, why not go ahead and just sin so that there'll be more glory for Him? Let us do evil that good may come. Hmm. Interesting question. He doesn't answer it. And with that thought, I want to go back to the beginning of these four questions. Because I, I think there's a pattern here that we need to follow. There's a progression. And that's the whole point of what I'm trying to say this morning. When he asks, what about the Jews? There's a legitimate question there because he has just kicked out from under them their confidence in the law, that they are the ones who keep the law, their confidence in circumcision. He says, you're missing the point. I say, well, what's the point in being a Jew then? A legitimate question. And he gives them a legitimate answer. The blessing of being a Jew is that the, is that the, um, uh, the revelation of the gospel came through you. The oracles of God came through you. That's a wonderful privilege that you have to a legitimate question. You understand that? And he says, what about the unbelieving Jews? And this now begins to call God into question. Can, can God sustain what he's doing? Can God's plan be sustained? Will God, uh, will God, this work that he's doing through the Jews, will it hold up if there are those who are in unbelief? And now you begin to question whether or not God is going to be um, continued to be seen in a good light. And he says, uh, let God be true, but every man a liar. Nothing that anybody does entering into, into unbelief is going to take God off balance. But you see, it became a question about God now. Next question. What about his justice? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath because, because my unrighteousness reveals more of his righteousness? Notice then what he says at the end of verse 5. This little parenthetical phrase. He said, I speak is a man. This is the kind of questions that a man raises when he wants to confront God. This is the kind of question the man raises when he wants to be clever. I speak as a man. He's saying that's not the question that I'm asking. Paul is making it clear. This is the kind of question that comes up. And then finally, and, that, and he answered that with that as we looked at it. How's he going to judge the world if he doesn't judge? He has to be able to judge. So you can't call him uh, unrighteous for doing that. Finally, what about the benefit of my sin? If my sin brings glory to him uh, through my lie, why am I judged as a sinner? I'm glorifying God. Why don't we say, let us do evil that good may come? And here's what's so very interesting. Verse 8, the second part of verse 8 says, 
as we are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say. See, Paul is raising these questions because they've been raised to him. He knows this is the kind of discussion that goes on out there as people are trying to get a grasp upon the gospel and they are rejecting it as we are slanderously reported. And as some affirm that we say, friends, there is nothing in the gospel that ever affirms that we do evil for the sake of glorifying God. There is nothing in the gospel that ever allows us to affirm that I can walk down the path of darkness, I can go Satan's way, and God will be glorified, so it's okay to go that way. That's the question of a fallen man who is trying to be cute and wanting to figure out a way to get around the truth of God. As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, and this is so interesting, that verse ends with, their condemnation is just. He never answered their question. It's as if he says, not going to even bother with that. I'm not going to give it the res- any respect to even interact with that question because people are throwing that out there and God will condemn them and it will be just, plain and simple. So if that progression from an honest question, what about the Jews? On through a clever question, can I do sin so that God is glorified? Hmm, why, why can't I do that? The one he gives an honest answer to. But with each of these four questions, I sense that there's a little bit growing irritation in Paul and having to answer them. So this is, this is where this thing comes to. Remember, he was building, he's building, he's building. But then he got off of that track of building towards his conclusion, which we're going to see next week. He got off, he said, I know these are questions that are in play. Why does he know those are questions in play? Because there are people out there saying them. He says, as we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say. This is what he's up against. And some of it he deals with and some of it he just dismisses. I won't give it any credence at all by interacting with it. So, Here's the point, friends, we'll wrap it up. Everyone has questions. Everyone. Honest questions will receive honest answers from the Lord. Such as, what advantage has the Jew? Help me understand here. You took out the law. You took out circumcision. These are the things the Jews were confident in. What, what are you telling me? What advantage do they have? And here's a legitimate answer. They have been given the privilege of being the revelators of God's gospel. Through them, all the, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. Wonderful. <clears throat> honest question, honest answer. But smokescreen questions will be dismissed. Questions not seeking an answer, but thinking they are smart enough to dismiss God. And I have a feeling that a lot of people in our world have figured I've got the answer, that I, the question that there's no answer to, God can't answer it, and uh, here it is. And they got this clever little question that will one day they believe they're going to be able to put God on the defensive. It's not happening, and he doesn't even deal with them. The smokescreen questions God will dismiss. Because none of us are clever enough. None of us are smart enough. None of us are philosophically so astute that we can raise the question that even God can't answer well. That's just not the case. So friends, 
I want to remind you that at the end of chapter 2, as Paul was describing those um, on the circumcision question, the end of chapter 2 ends with this. He, he throws this statement in. He says, when God will judge the secrets of men's hearts according to my gospel. You see, we've looked and we've graded these questions out. And we've said the first one was honest. The last one was so dishonest that Paul wasn't even going to contend with it. He just wasn't even going to give it any the time of day. God knows how honest our questions are. God knows if, we're, if we have truly sincere questions and He will meet us in those questions or He will um, be aware that they're not sincere and He will judge us in those questions. So it calls for us to be pretty honest with ourselves about where are we really at with the things of the Lord? Where are we at? Do we think we can outsmart Him? Do we think we're so clever? And that Paul is making it clear to us we'll never be that clever. We must yield ourselves and be in obedience to Him, humble ourselves before Him, and allow Him to do that redeeming work in our hearts. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You so very much that Your Word, in the midst of this long discussion that Paul is having of of what we are like as sinful people, proving to us that everybody's got stuff, that there's this little aside that calls us to question and examine ourselves. Where are we at with the things of God? Do we really, uh, are, are we approaching Him with honesty or do we think we can kind of skirt the issues and He'll never quite pick up on it? Lord, help us to understand that You indeed know the secrets of our hearts and that uh, we cannot put anything past you. And when the day comes and, and we stand before you, we will either stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in which we will have, you will affirm us as having eternal life, or we will stand in our own self-righteousness or unrighteousness, and you will affirm that um, we rejected you. And you will allow the, the reality of that to take its, its play out in our lives as well. And it's not good, Father. So give us hearts that humble ourselves before you to be honest enough to speak with you about what really, uh, really is going on in our lives, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.